Hello and welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges and I'm a pediatric hospitalist here at the Medical College of Georgia. I'm excited to introduce two guests on today's episode. First, we have Kayla Cooper. Kayla is a medical student here at MCG. Hi, Kayla. How are you? I'm doing great, Dr. Hodges. Thank you for having me. Very good. We're also joined by Dr. Nina Batamosi. Dr. Batamosi is an assistant professor of pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology here at MCG. She's also the director of the Pediatric Comprehensive Sickle Cell Program here at MCG. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Batamosi. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. On today's episode, we're taking another look at a very important topic. As you may remember, we discussed the acute complications of sickle cell disease way back in episode number four of the podcast in April 2020. Today, we'll begin a two-part series on outpatient care of children and adolescents with sickle cell disease. To get things started, Dr. Batamosi, will you remind our listeners what exactly is sickle cell disease and why is this topic so important for pediatricians? So that's a great question, Dr. Hodges. I'll define sickle cell disease first. So sickle cell disease is an inherited disorder of hemoglobin, and it causes red cell sickling and impaired oxygenation to tissues under a variety of stressful situations. It's also a multi-organ disease, and that can lead to impaired immunity, organ damage over time. But it's important to remember that with significant improvements in outpatient care over the past several decades, our patients have been living longer. And it is my goal to work with pediatricians to keep our patients healthier with minimal long-term complications as they grow older. Perfect. And we'll discuss many of the ways that pediatricians can work alongside our pediatric hematologists to improve the health of these children. With that, let's jump right into our first case. Kayla, do you want to present our first patient? Absolutely. So our first patient is a six-month-old male who presents to the hematology clinic to establish care. He was found to have sickle cell disease on routine newborn metabolic screen. His parents don't know very much about sickle cell and have many questions for the pediatrician. Dr. Banamosi, what are your main priorities for this initial visit? So Kayla, with this visit, my first goal is to establish their baseline knowledge of sickle cell disease because there's a lot of misinformation that circulates about sickle cell, right? Also, a lot of our patients don't get the benefit of preconception and prenatal genetic counseling. And so I try to establish if they're expecting the diagnosis and handle their expectations for the visit. Next, I give an overview of the diagnosis and the inheritance of, of sickle cell disease. And remember that many families might feel some kind of guilt about passing on a genetic disease to their infant. So I aim to fill gaps in their knowledge while helping them cope with what may be an overwhelming diagnosis. But that's only the beginning. Next, I introduce potential complications in the first year of life, especially risk of infection, vasoclusion, severe anemia, and splenic complications. And lastly, our patients need a lot of psychosocial support as they come to terms with dealing with this lifelong illness. And so our sickle cell social worker and nurse provide additional education and support for our families. It seems like this first visit is critical to ensure that patients are fully informed and supported when dealing with this difficult diagnosis. I think that it might be helpful to review each of the points one at a time. First, tell us more about routine newborn screening for sickle cell disease. How can you be sure the result is consistent with sickle cell? So typical newborn screening result will report any identified hemoglobins on electrophoresis in order of decreasing quantity. And so a child without hemoglobinopathy will be reported as hemoglobin FA, which stands for fetal hemoglobin and adult hemoglobin. And a child who carries sickle cell trait will be reported as hemoglobin FAS. When you see a result that says hemoglobin FS, which shows that they have only fetal and sickle hemoglobin, that is consistent with sickle cell disease. Dr. Batamosi, is newborn hemoglobin screening done in every state? And you mentioned sickle cell trait. Do they also need to be seen in the hematology clinic? 
So first, the question about newborn screening, um, and it's been performed in all 50 states to, since 2006. In terms of variant sickle cell disease, other abnormal hemoglobins can also be identified on newborn screening. But remember that the presence of hemoglobin A or regular adult hemoglobin does not always mean a normal result. So especially in babies who may carry beta thalassemia or in newborns who have been previously transfused, say in the NICU, that may not always mean a normal result. So when in doubt, please refer to the hematology clinic and we will be happy to confirm. But our patients with sickle cell trait are typically not seen in, in the clinic. I'm glad that newborn screening has been implemented nationwide for sickle cell disease so that patients may get treatment and support early on. So let's talk about vaccines. We know that patients with sickle cell disease are at a higher risk of invasive bacterial infections, especially from encapsulated organisms like salmonella or Neisseria or streptococcus pneumonia. Are there any special vaccine requirements for these children? Yes. So um, in addition to routine vaccines, children with sickle cell disease will require the additional pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine, also known as Pneumovax 23, and the meningococcal vaccine starting at two years old. And I'm assuming it would be fine for our general pediatricians to help administer these additional vaccines. They don't necessarily have to be administered in the hematology clinic, right? Absolutely. So we find that many pediatricians don't carry the pneumococcal polysaccharide or pneumovax vaccine, but there's no reason why our patients can't get the meningococcal series at their two-year well check with their pediatricians. So it seems like vaccines are definitely an important aspect of medical management for patients living with sickle cell disease. Next, let's talk about penicillin prophylaxis. Why is this important and what do general pediatricians need to know? So the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute or the NHLBI instituted some guidelines in 2014 on sickle cell disease care. And the recommendation is that penicillin prophylaxis continue until age five in children with hemoglobin SS disease unless they've had a splenectomy. However, since 2014, clinical practice has changed slightly across different states and different institutions. And so now we know that although the risk of invasive bacterial infection may be a little lower in other phenotypes like hemoglobin SC and hemoglobin S beta plus thalassemia, we still prescribe prophylaxis for all children with all sickle cell genotypes until age five, unless otherwise contraindicated. And this might be another good opportunity for our pediatricians to start penicillin prophylaxis right when we find out the patient has sickle cell disease on newborn screen, even before it's confirmed in the hematology clinic. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. So many of our patients, especially in the rural counties in South Georgia, that we don't get to see as often or as early on, they are started on and maintained on antibiotic prophylaxis by their pediatricians. And we're very thankful for that. Is there an easy dose for us to remember for those infants? Yes. So hopefully it's an easy enough dose to remember, but um, we typically start at 125 milligrams twice a day for children under three. And um, at age three, we increase to 250 milligrams twice a day. For young infants, and this is largely practice dependent, but here we choose to just start them on a lower dose at 62.5 milligrams twice a day until they're six months of age. Sure. And we'll be sure to link to, in our show notes to the, those dosings that you mentioned earlier. I've seen some children prescribe prophylactic amoxicillin instead. Are there any differences that we need to be aware of? Again, this is largely practice dependent, but there's typically no difference between the coverage provided by amoxicillin versus penicillin in terms of strep pneumonia coverage. For patients who are allergic to penicillin, however, we will offer erythromycin. And at what age do you typically discontinue prophylactic antibiotics? 
So going back to those 2014 guidelines, the recommendation is for discontinuation at age five. And this is typically when the pneumococcal vaccine series is completed, unless they've had splenectomy or a prior invasive bacterial infection. And at age five, we also administer a booster of the polysaccharide vaccine as well. Okay. And Dr. Patamosi, how would that be different if the patient had a splenectomy or prior invasive infection? Would you continue penicillin indefinitely? So that's a great question. The current guidelines for continuation of prophylaxis are based on the PROPS 1 and 2 studies that were conducted in the 80s. The PROPS 2 study specifically looked at whether or not our patients would be at risk for infection older than age 5. And so they looked at two different arms, one arm with um, antibiotic prophylaxis and another placebo arm in children who were older than 5 with sickle cell disease. But keep in mind that at that time, in mid to late 80s, that the life expectancy for sickle cell disease was not the same as it is now. So it was maybe late teens to early 20s. The recommendation was that even though patients in the placebo arm had slightly more invasive bacterial infections, they did not succumb to their infection or the infections were not life-threatening. The recommendation, however, is still that these patients continue antibiotic prophylaxis lifelong, but I think that guideline is overdue for review. So good. We've covered a lot of important information so far. These young children with sickle cell disease they need you know, early identification with newborn screening. They need additional vaccines, and they need to start penicillin prophylaxis very, very early. Next, I wanted to focus in on the anticipatory guidance that you might provide to these parents. What else would you might cover before you end this visit? So again, another great question. As we mentioned earlier, in addition to invasive infection, they're high risk for vaso-occlusive episodes, severe anemia, and splenic complications. So um, in terms of preventing infection, we emphasize good hygiene practices, avoiding those who are ill or infectious, um, and we give them guidance on strict return precautions, either to the ED or to the pediatrician if they have fevers with a temperature of 101 degrees Fahrenheit or higher, um, and educating other caregivers or daycares about reporting high fevers. Um, As providers, we work to to stay available to our patients when they have questions about fevers, and we also make the extended vaccines available in our clinic for when they turn to. It's so important for our listeners to remember that these children need to be evaluated if they have a febrile illness because of the high risk of infection. What might look like a typical viral upper respiratory illness for a patient without sickle cell disease could be the start of an overwhelming infection for this young child with sickle cell. Dr. Batamosi, are there any other anticipatory guidance that you might provide before you end this visit? Yes. So um, looking at the other complications, we are sure to cover the signs of vaso-occlusion, severe anemia, and splenic sequestration. Now, as far as vaso-occlusion, the earliest manifestation is typically dactylitis or hand and foot swelling, usually between 6 and 12 months of age. So for dactylitis, we counsel um, families to watch out for swelling of the hands or the feet, for irritability or what may seem like bone pain, if they're refusing to crawl or refusing to walk, these could be potential signs of dactylitis and vasoclusion. And we show them how to manage or we teach them how to manage this at home with NSAIDs typically or acetaminophen, um, but also cautioning that they might need more medical care if the pain is inadequately controlled at home. We also demonstrate a splenic palpation and signs of anemia like pallor, being pale, uh, conjunctiva, pale um, sclera, And we show these to parents so that they can recognize splenic sequestration early. 
And finally, we introduce hydroxyurea as a disease-modifying therapy for, uh, so that these patients and families are aware of the treatment options available to them. And we make a plan for families to begin hydroxyurea therapy around nine months of age. So take home for me is that these patients are extremely high risk, and there's much that you must cover during that for those first couple of visits, you know, including you know, vaccines, penicillin prophylaxis, and being aware of these other complications like splenic sequestration, severe anemia, and vasoocclusion. For our listeners, I recommend looking back to episode number four, where we review some of these acute complications and talk about the acute management for these patients. Moving on, Kayla, do you want to tell us about our next case? I sure can. We are moving on from some important aspects of the initial visit to the toddler age group. So our next patient is a two-year-old girl with hemoglobin SS disease who is brought to the clinic for a routine follow-up. She has already had two cases of painful vaso-occlusive episodes, one of which requiring admission. Her parents were previously hesitant when offered hydroxyurea therapy, but now are very open to starting therapy. Dr. Badamosi, what is hydroxyurea and why is it helpful for children with sickle cell disease? So that's a good question. Hydroxyurea is a ribonucleotide reductase inhibitor. It acts on hematopoietic stem cells and myeloid stem cells to induce fetal hemoglobin production within the red cells. The presence of fetal hemoglobin causes a relative decrease in sickle hemoglobin fraction, and that decreases the risk of polymerization and sickling of these red cells under stress. So hydroxyurea has demonstrated its ability to decrease the frequency and severity of vaso-occlusive crises, as well as improve long-term complications such as stroke, nephropathy, and cardiomyopathy. In addition, hydroxyurea also has anti-inflammatory properties that might mitigate the endothelial damage and inflammation that results in sickle-related vasculopathy. So for the non-hematologists, you know, hydroxyurea seems to be somewhat of a complex medication, but can lead to a lot of improvements in very patient-centered outcomes. Generally speaking, Dr. Badamosi, when would you start this medicine and what side effects would you look out for? So thinking back to some of the landmark clinical trials, the big one is Baby Hug. These clinical trials demonstrated safety and efficacy in children as young as six months starting hydroxyurea. And six months is around the time that fetal hemoglobin naturally ramps down in terms of production. And so I offer hydroxyurea in my patients anywhere between six and 12 months of age, but most patients end up starting around nine months of age. Now, the typical starting dose for hydroxyurea is 20 mg per kg in children. In adults, it may be lower, but in children, we start at 20 mg per kg. And children can tolerate doses up to 35 mg per kg, but hydroxyurea has to be monitored closely for myelosuppression, which may be a low white count or a low platelet count. Again, hydroxyurea is generally well tolerated and side effects tend to be mild apart from myelosuppression, but some families have reported hair thinning, rashes, and occasionally nausea vomiting. So thinking about myelosuppression, how often do you follow these children uh, when you're escalating therapy? So when we're escalating therapy, we tend to follow them every two to three months, but when they're on a stable dose, anywhere from three to four months is fine. That was a great overview of hydroxyurea therapy and some of the side effects that pediatricians should definitely be privy to. Is there anything else that you would want to mention about the two-year-old visit before we move on? Yes, definitely. So it's important to highlight the risk of stroke in patients with sickle cell disease. Now, historical studies have demonstrated an 11% risk of stroke in patients with sickle cell anemia before the age of 20 without intervention. And so at age two, we begin to monitor stroke risk by measuring cerebral blood velocity using a transcranial Doppler ultrasound or a TCD. 
Now, one fun fact about TCDs is that some of the landmark studies that demonstrated the use of TCDs in primary stroke prevention were initiated by investigators right here in MCG. And some of those investigators are still here today, like Dr. Abdullah Kutlar, who is head of the Adult Sickle Cell Disease Center, and Dr. Fenwick Nichols, who is in radiology and who reads a lot of our TCDs. But looking at, at TCDs and what it does, um, the TCD assesses elevated blood flow velocity in the circle of Willis, which correlates well with stenosis and risk for infarctive stroke. We now know that a lot of sickle cell morbidity results not just from sickling and impaired oxygenation, right, but from chronic damage to the endothelial linings in all organs from free hemoglobin that's released during hemolysis and red cell breakdown. So these cerebral blood vessels are particularly susceptible to the endothelial damage from that free hemoglobin. And early in life, the inflammatory response that results from this endothelial damage results in progressive stenosis that can be measured by changes in blood velocity. So to summarize, all patients with sickle cell anemia uh, that's the hemoglobin SS genotype or the hemoglobin S beta zero thalassemia genotype should begin screening TCDs at age two. Just so for our pediatricians listening in, those children with the most severe genotypes, hemoglobin SS or S beta zero thalassemia, they all start TCDs around age two. And you're looking at the velocity of blood flow through the cerebral vessels. As you see that increased velocity, you can infer there's damage to the endothelial lining and those children are at higher risk for stroke. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So very good. So if you have a patient who has an abnormal transcranial Doppler, what do you do then? So we start by offering hydroxyurea therapy if these patients are not already on it. If they are on hydroxyurea therapy and are on a low dose, we will escalate therapy to the maximum tolerated dose. And that's in an effort to increase the amount of fetal hemoglobin that's being produced and decrease the amount of intravascular hemolysis, right? But hydroxyurea also has anti-inflammatory effects on the endothelium. So even when fetal hemoglobin is not significantly increased, hydroxyurea can still be shown to have beneficial effects. So when these patients are on hydroxyurea, we will repeat our TCDs about six months or so after starting or increasing hydroxyurea to assess for improvement. And if no improvement is noted within six months, we will escalate to chronic transfusion or episodic transfusion therapy to prevent strokes. And Dr. Badamosi, how exactly do chronic transfusions reduce the risk of stroke? So transfusions work in different ways to reduce the risk of stroke. But first and most importantly, transfusions will decrease the relative amount or the relative fraction of sickle hemoglobin that can cause hemolysis and free hemoglobin and subsequent endothelial damage. But increasing the total amount of hemoglobin from transfusions will also allow for increased cerebral perfusion, um, and it will also enable healing of the endothelial lining. And the other way it can work is by diminishing erythropoietic drive to keep making more sickle hemoglobin. Because if you think about sickle cell patients, their bone marrows are ramped up and they're producing more um, hemoglobin than, and red cells than everybody else. So increasing their hemoglobin decreases your erythropoietic drive and hopefully decrease the sickle fraction as well. So for our pediatricians, keep in mind that young children and really all children with sickle cell disease are at high risk for stroke. Especially when you see that child who's receiving chronic transfusions, you can infer that they've had some imaging, likely, that shows that they're at increased risk or they've had a previous stroke. So be really careful with those patients. So for moving forward, Kayla, do you want to present our last case for today? Yes. 
Our last patient is a 10-year-old boy with hemoglobin SS disease seen in follow-up. He has relatively frequent vasoclusive episodes and has a history of abnormal transcranial Doppler screening. He is currently receiving chronic transfusions for primary stroke prevention. Dr. Badamosi, what routine screening would this child need at this visit, especially since he's receiving chronic transfusions? That's a good question. So this is a typical scenario, and we see a lot of patients like this in the sickle cell clinic. So first, chronic transfusions have been very helpful in preventing stroke in our patient population, right? But there are risks with long-term transfusion, and these are chronic iron overload and alloimmunization. And we can talk more about those later if you'd like. But next, we begin to monitor the long-term sequelae of sickle cell disease in general, um, especially with annual dilated eye exams to screen for retinopathy and annual echocardiograms to screen for um, cardiomyopathy. Finally, we ensure that vaccines are up to date. And if need be, we give the patients their five-yearly pneumovax and meningococcal boosters. So that seems like a very busy visit. I wanted to focus a little bit more on stroke prevention. How long will you typically continue chronic transfusions and transcranial Doppler screenings? So I'll start with chronic transfusions. Typically in patients who've never had a stroke, we would consider transitioning to hydroxyurea if they've had at least two normal TCDs and have been transfused for four years or more and can also demonstrate compliance, good compliance with hydroxyurea. For secondary prevention in patients who've already had a previous stroke, transfusions are typically considered lifelong unless contraindicated by either alloimmunizations or transfusion reaction or significant iron overload. Now, your question as far as when to stop TCD screening. TCDs are not very helpful after age 16 in most patients, and that's when we tend to stop. And this is typically because as our patients get older, you know, and as the cranial bones uh, mature, the radiologists describe a closure of the acoustic windows. So not because the risk is decreased, but just because it becomes technically more difficult to do TCDs as they get older. So we talked a lot so far about the importance of doing transcranial Doppler screening and, and using chronic transfusions in those children who are at higher risk of stroke. These chronic transfusions also can have some side effects, and one of those is iron overload. Dr. Batamosi, how would you prevent complications of iron overload, and what would you look out for? So to prevent iron overload, we start by initiating chelation therapy within the first six months of initiating chronic transfusions. But we also need to monitor at risk and organs. And so with each transfusion, we will assess hepatic and renal function, and that's usually monthly. Um, but we will also assess urine for proteinuria. And we do that at least annually. Um, we will also assess iron overload in addition to checking ferritin once a month. We will assess annually or biannually with an MRI-based cardiac or hepatic iron quantification. In addition to monitor the effects of chelation therapy, because iron chelators can also have their own toxic effects, such as nephrotoxicity and autotoxicity, we begin annual hearing screens or audiology screens, and we do uh, UAs or urinalyses to look for glycosuria or proteinuria, which can signify tubular damage. Those things seem like a lot of aspects that pediatricians should definitely be on the lookout for. You also mentioned retinopathy screening. Why do these patients need a retinopathy screen? So um, patients with sickle cell disease, especially the hemoglobin SC genotype, can have 
a lot of microvascular complications in later life. And no one really knows why the hemoglobin SC genotype as opposed to the other genotypes. But, you know, some long-term studies just showed that these patients were of slightly higher risk, you know, without necessarily a good reason for this. But um, we end up doing a sickle retinopathy screen starting at age 10. And it's important to remember that retinopathy can lead to retinal detachment and vision loss if it's not recognized early. And so it's definitely important to begin screening at an early age. And so for our pediatricians, we need to recognize that these children, they suffer from a disease that causes multiple systems to be involved and they need to see a wide variety of specialists. And one of these is the ophthalmologist for their yearly or maybe even more frequently visits. So we're getting a little bit short on time and we covered a lot of great information on the kind of the basic medical therapy that we give children in the sickle cell clinic in, in their infancy and as a school-aged child. Uh, Dr. Batamosi, do you want to provide our listeners some take-home points before we wrap up part one? Sure. The first thing I want to highlight is um, the importance of vaccines. So vaccines will help us prevent infection and decrease morbidity in our sickle cell patients. So it's important to make sure that our patients are on top of all of their vaccines, that they're up to date on all their childhood vaccines, and that we make sure that they get the extended vaccines after around the age of two. That's the meningococcal vaccines and the pneumovax. Um, the second thing I want to highlight is the risk of stroke and that because this is a debilitating complication of sickle cell disease, it's important that we begin screening our patients at two years of age, especially our patients with hemoglobin SS and hemoglobin S beta zero thalassemia. And we have treatment options available for patients who are not on any disease modifying therapy already that we can start them on treatment if we assess that they're high risk for stroke. It's also important to remember that apart from stroke, that we should be screening for the other long-term sequelae of sickle cell disease, such as retinopathy and nephropathy. And in terms of treatment, we think about hydroxyurea therapy, that earlier we institute hydroxyurea therapy, the more likely we are to prevent the short as well as the long-term complications of sickle cell disease, including stroke. And finally, take-home point about transfusions for patients who are at risk for strokes is that the need for chronic transfusions needs to be weighed against the long-term effects of chronic transfusions, such as alloimmunization and iron overload. And so that's an important point to keep in mind. Very good. So many important points for our trainees or even our pediatricians who are caring for these patients in their clinic. Well, I want to thank you again, Kayla and Dr. Batamosi, for joining me on today's episode. I'm looking forward to having you back on the podcast very soon to continue our discussion of this important topic. This was great. I can't wait for our next discussion. Been a pleasure sharing this knowledge with you, and I'm looking forward to the second part of our conversation. And thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. Mm-hmm.